while you're sitting back down, you can also take out your Bibles to be able to study and follow along, whether you have a paper copy or a digital version. If you're able, follow along with us in your Bible. We'll be turning to Acts chapter 13 this morning. As we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're gathered here because we know that you, the triune God of the Bible, are the only true God. We worship you. And even as we've been singing, we know that we worship you because of the Lord Jesus Christ. By his perfect life, sacrificial death, resurrection in power and ascension on high, he offers us forgiveness and makes us alive together with him so that by his spirit, we can live for you and leave behind our sinful past, even though we know that we still struggle with the flesh. We're slaves to it no more. So, Father, as we turn our attention now from this, even as we've been singing encouragement and confidence and courage knowing that we are in Christ, we pray that you'll help us, too, to follow in his footsteps, to obey his commands, to follow the pattern of that has been set before us even by your apostles in the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. How many times have you wondered if you are adequately prepared to proclaim the gospel? How many times have you wondered what gospel track to use or what approach to use in doing so? Or maybe you'll admit this morning that you need to be asking those types of questions. Well, in my study of Acts chapter 13, I've, I've become convinced that as Luke is establishing the patterns followed by Paul and Barnabas in their missionary endeavors, I've become convinced that we too should follow that pattern that, that Luke describes in the way their first mission, missionary endeavor began. So when Luke provides an example of Paul's evangelistic preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, I'm looking closely at Paul's message, and I'm looking closely at Paul's methodology to help us pattern our gospel proclamation accordingly. So I confess I am not a prophet about my own future preaching, but I bet this is the most how-to gospel message you're going to get out of me how to follow the pattern, how to proclaim the gospel. Let's follow the example given by the Apostle Paul. So we started this endeavor already last week, noting that as Paul begins his missionary message, he's attentive to his audience, first of all. And second, he takes great care to review the history of God's faithfulness to his promises that lead up to fulfillment in Jesus, who is the Christ. So that 
Second thing is a primary point from last week that I want to repeat again before we continue. And I'm going to do all of these in a form of question. So here's the first question for review. Why is it helpful to rehearse the narrative of Scripture in our gospel proclamation? In our gospel proclamation, it's right and necessary that we should rehearse the narrative of Old Testament Scripture. It provides the necessary context for understanding God and what he is doing. By reviewing the scriptural narrative of God's work, we do several things. We substantiate the existence of God. The Bible presumes the existence of God, and so going to the Bible reinforces, confirms, substantiates further the existence of God. Secondly, we establish God's holy and faithful character And we reveal God's promise in order that our listeners have opportunity to rightly fear God and desire his rescue. If there is no fear of God before their eyes, as we read in Psalm 36, verse 1, it will prove quite difficult to convince them of the goodness of God and the significance of their sin and their desperate need for salvation. That way, when Jesus is presented... There's understanding for that need if we give them the context of God's work in the world. Jesus really has no meaning to the listener without this context. But with the background of God's word, we begin to understand that Jesus came because of the seriousness of our sin, and he came because God is faithful to fulfill his promise. Okay, so now let's turn to where we're heading today. After rehearsing God's faithfulness to his promise to and through Israel by bringing fulfillment in Jesus, Paul gives further explanation and further evidence about the central event and purpose of Christ's ministry. That's the first thing we're going to talk about today. And in that description, it means specifically an emphasis on the death and resurrection of Jesus, followed by Paul giving them personal implication to his audience that they must make a choice concerning Jesus. We explained last week, as we head towards verse 26, we explained last last week that each transition in Paul's message to the church in Pisidian Antioch is marked by a direct address to his audience. So let's start with another direct address to his audience in a transition here at verse 26. Brothers, Sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, like they were doing just before they invited Paul to speak. they, They fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found no guilt in him worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people." We're going, to spot, we're going to pause there and, and explain this some. 
Now, again, though this is also repeated from last week, Paul continues to be attentive to who his audience is. So we should also be asking ourselves, how might we account for our audience in our gospel proclamation? Let's look first at Paul's example in verse 26. We hear him say, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and we talked about this some last week, those who fear God. It links the significance of Jesus with the history of God's faithfulness to his promise to bring salvation. To us has been sent the message of salvation. Paul's talking to them as as people who should be eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise. To us has been sent the message of salvation. The fruition of the gospel has now come. The fruition of God's promises. And Paul also, in doing all of this, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, fellow people who fear God, he connects himself to these people. Remember that Paul doesn't see himself as above any of them. Remember when you hear Paul talk about himself, upon whom this great mercy was shown so that I, the chief of sinners, could be a living testimony to the grace of God. Paul connects himself to his listeners. He connects himself to his audience with a common need for this salvation. Following Paul's example of evangelistic preaching in our gospel proclamation, it's right and necessary that we account for our audience. I thought of a couple ways that we can apply this. Now, obviously, will it be different if you're presenting to a group of people versus having conversations with individuals? Yeah, if you're presenting to a group of people, you, you account for your audience in different ways. And I, I think of this a lot because we might be preaching a text and making application to this group gathered here this morning. I'm not pre- preaching to a group of people who live in New York City. I'm preaching to a group of people who live in the Midwest. I'm preaching to a group of people who claim that they fear God, just as Paul was preaching on this day and so on and so forth. So I intend to, as best as I can, understand the audience and speak to you where I think you are at, right? And so as the pastor of a local church, I try to know you and understand you and speak into the situations of your lives as we make application. And then you can also think of being careful, though, even though I, I sort of know, we, we pr- try to be careful not to presume there's uniformity in our thinking, which is hard to do when you're presenting to a group. But then ask yourself about speaking to individuals. What we need to do in order to know our audience is we need to ask questions and be good listeners. Aren't you told, even by the secular world, that people like to talk about themselves? <laughs> So as a wise uh, proclaimer of the gospel, you want to ask people about themselves and listen well to understand who they are, understand what they already know, understand what it is that they may believe or think they believe. Be good listeners. Try to understand your audience. There's only one message of the gospel But the better we understand someone, the better our clarity of gospel presentation for that person. Do you think that I will share the gospel differently with you 
as I hear about your situation and your life story than I would sharing the gospel with one of my Yanomamu friends in the Amazon rainforest. Absolutely. They have very different experiences in a very different background. So we aim to listen well. There is only one gospel message, but the better we understand someone, the more clearly we can present the gospel so that they can understand and repent and respond. And now here's another question we can answer from these verses about the pattern Paul establishes that we should follow. We're going to spend a lot of time in this section. The message of salvation centers on what historical person and what historical events. Super obvious, isn't it? But I joke around with people now because I've heard it happen numerous times with innocent phrases like, I believed in God. You've probably heard yourself do it (laughs) when you're giving your testimony. I joke around with, with you that it's a good idea to mention Jesus in your, your testimony. You can't accurately witness or give testimony of your salvation without emphasizing the central figure of not only your faith, but of God's only means of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical examples indicate that we should be specific about who Jesus is and why he came. We should be very specific that Jesus died and rose again, and why he did that and why it matters that I believe in him alone to save and restore me to God. We try to be as clear and specific as we possibly can about the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can follow Paul's pattern here, where in verse 27, he says, for the message of salvation, he's going to explain, centers around the climactic events that took place concerning Jesus. Again, there is no message of salvation apart from Jesus, and there is no message of salvation without the cross and the resurrection. It isn't simply Paul's audience in a synagogue in in Antioch of Pisidia that must understand God's purpose and plan for Christ's suffering and Christ's resurrection. Anyone who would be saved must comprehend the identity and work of Jesus Christ. And they must then choose, commit, and trust themselves to him alone to be their complete salvation. Therefore, Paul explains The people in Jerusalem, and especially their rulers, did not recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy, which is read every Sabbath, which is Paul's way of highlighting that they should have done so, they should have understood. It is the established practice of the Jews to read the prophecy regularly on the Sabbath. Now, the apostle Paul or the Apostle John said it this way in the introduction to his gospel. He, the Christ, the Son of God, in human flesh, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, the Israelites, and his own people did not receive him. Instead, the Jews in Jerusalem, according to Paul back in verse 27 here in our text, They participated in fulfilling the scriptures by condemning Jesus. I'll comment here that it's possible, if not probable, that Luke 
In his summary of Paul's message, I told you last week that if we can read Paul's message in several minutes, this probably isn't everything that he said. Luke gives a a solid summary of the most important aspects of Paul's message. I think Luke didn't have space and time to include every scriptural citation that Paul may have used. And we'll see some that he highlights, three specific ones later or four. Here, Paul may then have had such examples in his mind of their rejection and betrayal being fulfilled in the scriptures. Scriptures like Isaiah 53, verse 3, and Psalm 118, verse 22. He, the Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In Psalm 118, 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The point Paul is making is that most Jews in Jerusalem missed their Messiah. And that a rejection and execution of Jesus fulfilled scripture. They missed their Messiah, but the execution of Jesus fulfilled scripture. Even the rejection of Jesus by Israel as a whole fulfilled scripture. And also that sacrificial death of the Christ was then, if we're understanding it as the fulfillment of Scripture, then it was the definite plan of God. See a similar theme in Peter's words in his opening sermon in Jerusalem at Pentecost. Do you recall this? Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And now verse 28, as we continue, is further explanation of how they did this. The Jews and leaders in Jerusalem, there was a trial, and that trial yielded his innocence, no guilt worthy of death. Now, you may recall from Luke chapter 23, they they ended up convicting him in their own eyes of blasphemy for admitting his identity. And, and also by claiming to Pilate that he was an insurrectionist, that he was guilty of sedition against Rome. But even of this, Pilate knew he was innocent, Luke 23, 1 through 5. We know, however, that in the end, later in Luke 23, Pilate relented to their cries for his crucifixion, verses 21 to 24. But Jesus' enemies unknowingly fulfilled the prophecies about the Savior, Despite this miscarriage of justice by the Jewish leadership and the citizens in Jerusalem and by Pilate, this was according to God's plan and purpose. This injustice was ultimately so that Christ could fulfill God's perfect justice on behalf of those whom he would justify through faith. Verse 29 summarizes then the actual execution concerning which Paul chooses to emphasize for his audience also as being fulfilled according to the scripture about the Messiah. They carried out all that was written of him. Again, the texts that he may have had in mind are texts like Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 about the suffering servant and Psalm 22, Psalm 69, Psalm 118. So too, the apostles intentionally refer to Christ's death on a tree 
which alludes to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, where it says that a person who dies in a manner, in, in, that, in that such manner, is cursed by God. And although it isn't developed here in Luke's summary, Paul explains the significance of this in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed, for, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul taught the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. He who knew no sin took upon himself our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's quoting Paul in his letter, his second letter to the Corinthians. And in order for us to become the righteousness of God, we are being justified through faith, declared righteous before God, Romans 5.1. Here in verse 29 of Acts 13, the emphasis transitions from the cross to the clear fact that they laid him in a tomb because he was dead. And his body wasn't discarded in the normal dishonorable manner of crucified criminals. But again, laying him in a tomb is confirmation of his factual death. And it also sets up the essential truth of his resurrection accomplished by God. Verse 30 says again, but God raised him from the dead. While it was others who caused Christ's execution on the cross, it was God himself who vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. This vindicates not only his innocence, but it also vindicates God's saving purposes through him. And it vindicates Christ's person as Lord of all. God raised him from the dead. The fact of the resurrection is absolutely essential to the gospel. If Christ has not been raised, then Paul will explain in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Our faith is futile. And our hope of eternal life is pointless. But Christ has been raised. So Paul works hard to establish the fact of the resurrection with eyewitnesses who can and are presently testifying to the truth of his, of his appearances to them. Verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. You can go to Jerusalem and meet them yourself, or actually you might have to go find them in other communities because right now they're being persecuted. You can meet Peter yourself. You can meet John yourself. You can meet Christ's own half-siblings who did not believe in him, but because of the resurrection have come to believe in him. They know that Jesus is Lord. Josh McDowell rightly argues in his book, More Than a Carpenter, that the only logical explanation for the behavior of the apostles and what followed in their lives after the historical life of Jesus. The only logical explanation is that these men truly believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Lord Jesus Christ was raised from the dead because he appeared to them repeatedly before ascending to the throne of God. 
You don't stake your life on a known falsehood. Instead, they stake their lives on the proven resurrection of Jesus and on the Spirit whom he gave them to be his witnesses. We now have the entire New Testament canon to establish this, especially the four Gospels and Acts. We can go here and we can show it and review it and tell it again and again and again that Jesus has been raised. So in our gospel proclamation, we have to do the really obvious thing, which is tell of the Lord Jesus Christ, and especially of his atoning death and resurrection and power, and that he's alive and coming again. And we continue in verse 32 with yet another pattern from Paul that we should follow. Read along with me beginning in verse 32, and we bring you, Barnabas and I, and John Mark, we bring you the good news of what God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children of Israel, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to see, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you, Israel, the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Here we have Paul's example to us, which answers this question. What essential tool has God provided that we must use in gospel proclamation? God has given his revelation in his word, the Bible. The scripture itself confirms what God reveals, what God says, and it reveals that, that what God says has its intended effect, even as the rains water the earth and produce health and growth and all that is needed. It does not merely evaporate and return to God empty, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. The Holy Spirit further says in Hebrews that God's word is living and active. Picture a sharp, double-edged sword. So that when we allow God's word to speak the truth that God reveals it pierces the inner man, teaching a person to judge accurately the thoughts and desires of their heart, Hebrews 4.12. And in a description of the armor of God for believers, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're instructed to arm ourselves with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Should we, must we use the Bible you see, I'm arguing the point to you right now about what God says by using Scripture. The pattern Paul gives us here is to use the Bible, to use God's revealed word in the Jewish Old Testament Scriptures and in the New, the new Covenant Scriptures provided us to us through the ministry of the apostles and those personally connected with them. 
Let God himself speak from his word. Let God speak. When Paul proclaims to them good news that what God promised he has fulfilled to us in Jesus, verses 32 and 33, he uses scriptural quotation to show that through Christ's coming and through his death and resurrection in particular, God has vindicated his promises. Remember that Paul has reviewed God's faithfulness to his promises to fulfill in Jesus Christ, and now he will show further from Scripture. He reviews the historical account of what took place with Jesus, and now he will say again from Scripture, the Christ has been raised, and this was God's plan. Now, here's my effort to give you the simplest summary I can of how Paul seems to be using these three quotations. The first quotation, God brought forth the true messianic son as he promised, Jesus the Christ, Psalm 2-7. And then secondly, his promise he had made, the promise that he had made to David, he reinforced to Israel at the time of their exile that they would yet receive the holy and sure blessings of David, Isaiah 55, verse 3. This God has now accomplished the third quotation, and the proof is in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, Psalm 1610. He is the son of David and the son of God whose body did not decay because he was resurrected on the third day. Now, the way the apostles use the Jewish scriptures in the New Testament can seem complex. So it's only fair that we spend more time on Paul's quotations and explanation next week. But for today, I feel like it's right and necessary to show how this message that Paul is giving hangs together so that we can follow the pattern. So I'm going to move on. But let me summarize one more time what I believe Paul is showing with these three quotations. God raised up the true son, the messianic king, as he promised. God reinforced his promise and reassured his people in exile that they would still indeed receive the holy and sure blessings of David. This he has now done and proven by the token of the Holy One's resurrection from the dead, which could not be applied to David, but does apply to Jesus. What's the point for us to take away? God has given us his own revelation, so we must use it. The Bible is not only our primary source of information, For evangelism, but this is the sword of the Spirit, so it's also our primary weapon. We may summarize it, we may quote it, but the goal is to show what God Himself has revealed. This is what God says. A final question to answer this morning from Paul's pattern is this Gospel proclamation isn't finished until we have done what with our hearers? Look with me at verses 38 to 41 at Paul's example. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, Lest what is said in the prophets should come about, and Paul is implying about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one 
tells it to you. Evangelism isn't done until we have made it personal and invited them to make a decision to accept or reject Jesus. Now, it may be the case, perhaps even often, that we won't get an immediate overt reaction in the affirmative or to the contrary. That's okay, precisely because we aren't trying to do the Holy Spirit's work that only God can do. But by the example we see, our part isn't done until we've expressed to the person or people as clearly as we can that a response to Jesus is required by God. So Paul argues, which again will have to be a summary for this morning, that Christ has fulfilled what is necessary to secure our forgiveness, which is atonement for sin. Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly, the law's righteous requirement, Romans 8, 4, so that in him we might be justified, declared right, free from needing to fulfill what the law requires, which is we're unable to do. The law can't justify us because we can't keep it perfectly. Jesus not only kept perfect holiness, he then took our sin upon himself and became an atoning sacrifice on the cross so that by his resurrection life, we can be forgiven and free, restored to God. In conclusion, let's review what God has said through the Apostle Paul and apply it to us. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's saving promises. Jesus revealed and fulfilled God's perfect plan by his death and resurrection which is well attested by New Testament witnesses and by Old Testament prophecy. It is Jesus alone who can offer forgiveness of sin and the perfect rightness that we need to be in relationship to God. So you, here, this morning, must respond in faith to Jesus, or you will find yourself a scoffer who rejects Jesus and will perish. To learn for all eternity how wrong you were to not accept God's offer of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not be a scoffer. Repent and be forgiven and free. Christians, let's use Paul's evangelistic framework to help us be better equipped in gospel proclamation. Number one, we should take care to know our audience as best we can. Because although the overall message of salvation is the same, the presentation is impacted by what the person knows and doesn't know, what the person believes and doesn't believe. Secondly, rehearse the narrative of Scripture to give appropriate context for who God is and who we are, and why Jesus came. Number three, be as specific and complete as we can about the person and work of Christ, about his his life, about his ministry, about his sacrifice and his resurrection. And that includes explaining that what has happened since then is precisely because Jesus is who God says he is. You can include yourself in the line of succession that follows the apostles. 
Jesus has changed everything. Not just for them, but for me. Number four, from beginning to end, the truth of God's own word is our primary tool in evangelism. Memorize it, summarize it, quote it. Consider having the person you're witnessing to read the words themselves out loud as you open the scripture. And number five, whether it takes multiple opportunities over time or if you have only one shot, our goal must be to put a choice before our hearers to accept or reject Jesus Christ. Church, we live and die as Christ's witnesses still growing in this endeavor, right? Still growing in this endeavor to be faithful witnesses. We have to be okay with that. Not perfect, in process. But we shouldn't be okay if we aren't doing it. Or if we aren't following the pattern of evangelism we see in Scripture. Don't be okay with that. Just because you're not a perfect marksman doesn't mean you don't aim for the bullseye. Jesus Christ is the bullseye. We follow his example. We confess, repent, seek forgiveness, and ask him to help us be faithful. But we dare not be lazy. Let's not be lazy. In fact, <clears throat> I want to offer to you to take these five things from this context and this message, and I want to offer to you to do to workshop this thing on a Wednesday night or, or in Sunday school. Let's talk through it and workshop how we can do this better and follow the advice that we have for one, from one another as we try to implement being faithful. Finally, we must pray like ultimately none of this depends on us and all of it depends on God because that's the truth. <laughs> Let's pray. Triune God, salvation is from you. And we know that salvation is for our good, but for your glory. We pray for your indwelling Holy Spirit to make us faithful witnesses. And we pray for the salvation of souls that you are drawing to yourself. Thank you for letting us be a part of your ministry in this world. Amen.